joyful sounds of kick-ass here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name is Rod, and today we are going to be reporting a crime scene. Yes, a crime scene that may be about to occur here in the studios of 2XX. And who better to help us with a crime scene but with an expert in forensics? I'd like to introduce our guest today, Professor Chris Leonard, who is the head of forensics at the University of Canberra. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Rod, and thanks for the invitation. Oh, pleasure to have you. Now, Chris, if this were a crime scene and we were to come back to this point in time and this place later on, uh, how would we prove that who was here and when and what and why? What sort of procedures would you go through at a crime scene? What we uh, generally look for at a crime scene is what we call physical evidence. So this is information left behind by the offender. Uh, it could be things like hairs and fibres, could be fingerprints, uh, could be uh, uh, things such as footwear impressions on the on the carpet or, or uh, footwear impressions on the table, depending on what the person has been up to. So we have to preserve the crime scene initially, uh, then go searching for this physical evidence, uh, collect it, analyse it, and then interpret what it actually means uh, to not only show what might have taken place, but ultimately to find evidence that could link to the actual offender. Now, I imagine that procedures must be pretty tight to avoid contaminating evidence. What, what kind of things would you do or would you instruct a police uh, force to do when they got to a scene like this? The general process is that the first responder uh, obviously has to quickly assess the scene. If there are individuals who are injured, then obviously the first priority must be to, to render first aid to those individuals. Uh, once those individuals have been removed from the scene, then it's a matter of protecting the scene and stopping unauthorised persons from entering that scene. And indeed, the first responder is also told not to do any unnecessary activities at the scene because they could uh, tamp or they could interfere with potential evidence and they could actually add their own uh, contamination to the scene, which makes our job as a forensic scientist much more difficult. Yes, because then you get later on into the legal system and to how this information is interpreted. We'll get into that a bit later, but first of all, how do you feel about the public attitude? So forensics has got such a big visibility and so much attention in, in the public eye because of shows like CSI. Does that frustrate or fascinate and delight you? <laughs> I think to answer that, it's a combination of all of those things. Uh, there has certainly been an increased interest in forensic science because of TV shows such as CSI. And on a positive note, I think any, uh, any show such as CSI which increases the public's interest in science must be a good thing. The forensic science that you see on TV is loosely based on what we can actually do as forensic scientists, but unfortunately it is exaggerated in, in terms of capabilities in terms of how conclusive the results might be, in terms of how fast that they can actually generate a result. So on the one hand, you have an increased interest in science and forensic science, which is a good thing. But on the other side of the coin, you have some unrealistic expectations uh, in terms of what forensic science can actually do and how long it actually takes to generate forensic results. Well, I guess their objective is to produce an entertaining story, to move along a good plot, to have good character development, and little things like the time it takes to do some DNA analysis or fingerprint analysis or whatever uh, isn't going to help them. Do, do you, what are the main kind of errors that you see them doing in these shows? 
There's certainly a, a number of errors. Uh, you see, for example, the same person processing the crime scene, collecting the evidence, taking the evidence back to the laboratory, processing the evidence in the laboratory, having time to get involved in shootouts and car chases, <laughs> having time to in interrogate suspects. In fact, what actually happens is that the investigation yeah. is undertaken by a team of specialists. Mm. You have your specialist crime scene examiner, your specialist biologist, your specialist chemist, fingerprint expert, etc. And the actual investigation is run by a police investigator. It's not run by the forensic scientist. So is the separation of responsibilities important for um, trying to keep some kind of objectivity into the whole process that people don't get too Im embedded in it in a one um, their own private point of view? Is that kind of part of what that's about? It certainly is an important uh, um, issue to separate the objective forensic science from the police investigation. So that separation of role is extremely important. And as forensic scientists, we only need certain information to be able to process the scene and process the evidence back in the, uh, in the laboratory. And we don't want a lot of unnecessary information regarding the investigation because we want to maintain our objectivity. Now, I don't want, we can't talk about specific cases here, but can you give us some examples of some sorts of contamination of evidence that you, you've come across that you know about, just, just generically? Well, certainly if a crime scene examiner is, is not careful at a crime scene, they can uh, leave behind or, or contaminate the scene with, with material they have left from their own clothing, uh, if they handle items without wearing gloves, they can leave their own finger marks. Uh, hairs and fibres, as I mentioned earlier, is important, an important type of evidence. We want to make sure that the evidence collected at the crime scene is not unnecessarily contaminated because when it comes back to the laboratory, the laboratory-based forensic scientist will interpret what has been collected as being relevant to that particular investigation. They won't necessarily know if it's been contaminated at the scene by a first responder or, or by the crime scene examiner. Have you seen this happen? Uh, I'm not aware of significant contamination. Uh, where there has been issues of contamination uh, that I've been aware of, it's just generally been discovered through a DNA profile which has been contaminated by someone involved in the investigation. So, for example, you might get a mixed DNA profile from a contamination. Or, for example, if an item has been collected from the crime scene and finger marks are developed, if there's a finger mark on there from someone involved in the investigation, then that is also an example of accidental contamination. Does, does it make much difference in what category of crime scene we're talking about here? Are there major divisions in your approach or to what happened? The, the general approach to crime scene examination is the same. Uh, the same precautions are taken uh, when, when the crime scene is approached, the same precautions to avoid contamination, the same types of information that will be collected. Uh, obviously, the amount of work involved will be significantly different if you go from a simple burglary scene to, through to a murder scene. But the general approach at the outset is the same. All right, so... The investigators are coming into the studios of Two Double X and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, and you've got your uh, or the, the you or the collection data collection team have got their implements with them. What sort of implements do they have, and what what are they going to do? What's the first thing they would do? 
the first thing a, a forensic scientist would do or a crime scene examiner would do uh, would be to talk to individuals who were the first at the scene, so the first responder, the police investigator, talk to them, find out what's taken place, get a general idea of the, the different scenarios that are being considered. Uh, obviously, it depends on the type of crime uh, and the particular scenario. What was the path, for example, taken by the offender, so entry or exit points, uh, what has been moved at the crime scene? For example, if someone has been injured and taken away, then someone has had to walk onto the scene to render first aid and to remove that person from the scene. So obviously there is a risk there that things have been contaminated, things have been moved. It's important that we know that from the outset, what may have been tampered with. So a lot of consideration is required before the crime scene examiner actually enters the scene. So it's talking to a number of people to get an idea of what's taken place, come up with a plan in terms of how will we process this scene. So that's the first important point, oh, is come up with a plan for how the scene will be processed. Does a plan say what kind of evidence you require? So it might be sexual assault or a murder or a burglary or whatever, that there are different facets that you're going to explore in more detail depending on the type of crime? Absolutely. So depending on the type of crime and the different scenarios that are being considered, the forensic scientist will be thinking about, well, what types of evidence might have been left behind by the offender, might have been taken with them by the offender. So, for example, if a window has been smashed to gain entry to the, the studio here at uh, 2XX, window's been broken. OK, uh, if the person has climbed through the window, have they cut themselves? Is there blood present? Have they left behind some fibres that have been caught on the broken glass? On their clothing, they will take with them glass from the scene. So you're, you're thinking not only about what they might have left at the scene, but w what they might have taken with them. So later on, if a suspect has been located, we can go looking for that evidence that may link that individual back to that scene. So you, you're trying to reconstruct actually what happened at the scene. Uh, actually, speaking of windows reminds me of my great-uncle's house was broken into, and the burglar put his ear against the window so he could hear whether anybody was inside and then the police picked up an ear print from him. Have you seen that before? I certainly have, yes. Uh, break and enters, uh, particularly into apartments, uh, can sometimes lead to ear prints being uh, discovered on the door as the person puts their ear against the door to see if there's any activity within the apartment. Now, those types of prints are discovered when we go looking for finger marks and discover that there's an ear print there. Uh, ear prints can be used for identification. Also, the height of the ear print off the ground can give us an approximation of the, the height of the person who has left that mark. Oh, it's amazing how you can discover so many things. It's like astronomy, you know, you, they look at this tiny little bit of spectra off a star thousands of light years away, and they can deduce the amazing things that are going on in that star just from that little twinkle. Um, and so there must be physical things as well. So if you hit a glass pane, then the it's going to break in a certain way, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's even possible after the window's been broken to examine the fragments of the glass and determine the direction of impact. So was it broken from the inside out or from the outside in? And also, by reconstructing the window, how many blows took place to actually break the window? So we can determine direction of impact and how many blows actually were applied to break that window. And then you're going to retell this story in some form to 
a court in a court scene. We'll get into court scene and law and how the law treats forensics later on. We might cut to a little track now and let's have a little bit of prodigy. My guest today is Professor Chris Leonard, who is the head of forensic at the University of Canberra. And his bit of prodigy always outnumbered on two double X. says you know that I can but we'll find out if you did because today we're talking about forensics here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show and my special guest today is Professor Chris Leonard who is the Head of Forensic Studies at the University of Canberra and we're talking about crime scenes and what happens at a crime scenes and what happens when the police and the investigating team walk into a crime scene they like to bring a bunch of equipment because we like lights to go blink and boxes and flashing lights and oh, all, the, all the little digital doodahs. Chris, what kind of equipment will a team bring to a crime site? Firstly, what they'll, they'll bring onto the scene will be what they need for note-taking. So there's extensive notes that have to be taken when you enter a crime scene. And ph- photography. Uh, so cameras are required to start recording the crime scene right from the outset. Once we then start moving through the crime scene, uh, we will be not only taking notes and taking photographs, but looking at potential physical evidence that needs to be collected. To search for that potential evidence, depending on the type of evidence we're looking for, we may well use specialised light sources that will reveal certain stains, like blood stains, saliva stains, oh, so these semen like ultra- stains. ultraviolet lights, you mean? Can example? be ultraviolet, can be also in the visible region. So uh, we use different wavelengths or different colours of light depending on the type of evidence we're looking for. Oh, do, do those things bring out different uh, um, things, different surfaces, different chemicals perhaps? Depen- what, what are they revealing? Yep, depending on the surface and the type of substance we're looking for. So, for example... Blood, even dilute blood, absorbs very strongly violet light. So we will look at that particular wavelength when we're looking for blood stains. Whereas if we're looking for things like saliva or semen stains, they tend to fluoresce. So we're looking for fluorescence. So we will adapt the the type of light source and the particular colour or wavelength we're using to the particular type of physical evidence we're looking for. Ah, so I'm imagining our crime scene investigator now. They've Perhaps they've dimmed the lights and they just turn these light the uh, this light source on and they're walking around just eyeballing the scene. Is that kind of what they're doing? Correct. There, there will be a general overview of the scene, looking where potential evidence may be located, and also at the same time coming up with a plan in terms of in what in what order will we collect that potential evidence after it's been documented through the notes and through the the photographs. Oh, this is the plan that we were referring to. Well, we have a plan before you enter the crime scene. Yeah. But as you, you're doing a preliminary walk through the crime scene, you'll also be coming up with another plan in terms of, OK, I can actually now see where potential evidence may be located and I now have to think about in what order will I collect that evidence. Uh, I've been watching the Sherlock series lately. It's, it's really entertaining and, and he just seems to glance at something and he picks up some vital clue and then he draws a conclusion from it. <laughs> Is that more just for a uh, good story effect telling, do you think, than uh, reality? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the things that frustrates me about shows such as CSI in that they don't bother taking notes, they rarely take photographs, and they will just randomly walk around the crime scene. 
they will see something on the floor. They'll walk up to it and they'll pick it up and they'll immediately say, well, this is X, Y, Z, and this is what it means. It takes a long time to process a, a crime scene in terms of all of the notes, all of the photographs, before you would even think about walking up to something on the floor and picking it up. Yes, I, I suppose the consequences of getting it wrong, of doing something wrong with the evidence, uh, do you damage, I mean, apart from possibly contaminating evidence, you might perhaps lose some evidence by not treating it properly? Absolutely, and, that, and that's one of the considerations as you're walking uh, onto the crime scene is that there will be different types of evidence that may be lost if it's not captured immediately. And this is even more important at outdoor crime scenes. If you see potential evidence, and depending on the weather conditions, if they are hairs and fibres, they could blow away. If it's raining, you could lose um, valuable evidence. So you have to think about collecting this fragile evidence first or somehow protecting it so that it's not lost. Oh, now let's talk about loops, whirls and arches. And Francis Galton, who's one of the smartest people who ever lived, apparently had an IQ of around 200, almost qualifies him for a guest visit to Fuzzy Logic. Inventor of the fingerprint technique. It has a venerable history, does it not? Yeah, there's an extensive history in terms of the use of fingerprints as evidence. We've been now routinely using fingerprint evidence for more than about 110 years. And it's uh, certainly one of the mainstays of forensic evidence and, and still one of the main types of evidence that we will go looking for, given that we can conclusively indicate that a particular finger mark has come from a particular individual. Has it changed much over the years? The, the actual identification of the finger mark is, is still largely done by a fingerprint identification expert. Obviously, we now have the assistance of computer databases, which can rapidly speed up the searching process to, to come up with the closest matching finger marks. But the actual final identification of the finger mark, again, unlike what you see on CSI, is actually still done by a human, by a fingerprint identification expert. And that hasn't changed significantly over that period. Oh, so the computer doesn't give a, a really reliable match? All the computer does is rapidly searches an extensive fingerprint database and comes up with a hit list of the closest matching finger marks on the database. But the actual person who left the finger mark at the crime scene may not necessarily be the top one or two candidates on the list. They may actually be further down that list, and it's a manual exercise to do the final comparison and the final identification ah so the computer is doing the matching now we're talking about the pattern that your fingerprint makes and i mentioned loops whirls and arches can you give me a quick description of those <laughs> a bit hard to describe the actual form over the radio but uh, well, the, 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 the arches <laughs> simply look like the arch of a bridge if you take the the sydney harbour bridge and the form of the the top of the bridge is the is the form of the the arch uh, with a whirl, it's more a circular pattern, uh, and the, the loop will start at one side of the finger mark, go up towards the top of the finger mark, and then leave on the same side of the finger mark. So you could have a left or right uh, loop. But it's important to say that the overall pattern is not what is used for the final identification because the pattern is genetically determined. It's actually the very fine ridge detail that is ultimately used for the final identification. Uh, but it does give you a, a broad categorization, does it not? So you can filter out something like 70% percent 
15 and 5% of population falls into the respective three categories? Yeah, that's correct, in that we use the overall pattern as an initial screening tool. So we will immediately go to finger marks that have the, the corresponding pattern. And once we have an overall pattern that is the same, we then go looking at the very fine ridge detail. Okay, so that's, that's the pattern that, which reflects the shape of the skin on your fingers, uh, or possibly your, even your ear, as we discussed earlier, but not loops, whirls and arches. Uh, are there other kinds of th- evidence you get from a fingerprint, like chemical traces perhaps? Yeah, with the finger mark that's left behind, there's a couple of things that can be analysed. The finger mark may actually contain skin cells, so we can in some cases get a DNA profile off a finger mark. In some cases, the DNA left behind may not be the DNA from that individual who left the finger mark. If we take the scenario of someone who has committed a murder, on their fingers may well be DNA from the victim, blood from the victim, for example. So the finger mark left behind will be the finger mark of the offender, but the DNA will be the DNA from the victim. So that's certainly one example of a chemical analysis, in this case a DNA profile, that can give us further information. Well, we might break to another track and here on the Fuzzy Logic Sideshow. My name is Rod and special guest today is Professor Chris Leonard from the University of Canberra. And by the way, who's also studied in Switzerland at the University of Lausanne, a postdoctoral forensic science work there and worked in forensics uh, criminalistics and uh, also worked at the Australian Federal Police. Now, this brought you into contact with the Bali bombings, Chris. What was your experience in going to Bali? Yeah, that's right. I, over the period I worked with the Australian Federal Police, uh, that included the, the Bali bombings that took place in October of 2002, which you know, tra- tragically uh, took 202 lives, including uh, 88 Australians. So I was in Bali for, for two weeks as, as part of the forensic investigation, and that was, was certainly a very interesting experience. So what happened? Were you at work and the phone rang and someone said, Chris, we would like you to come to Bali I certainly wasn't amongst the first to attend the scene in Bali. Uh, the, the Australian Federal Police very quickly uh, had some people on the ground in Bali uh, as part of the investigation, but I became involved a, a couple of weeks later where when we had to relieve some of the people who had been working in Bali for the first two to three weeks. So I was part of, uh, if you like, a second wave of forensic scientists who came through to relieve the, the first responders to that incident. Okay, so you got off the aeroplane, you get your accommodation. Did you then go to the crime scene? Yes, the, the day of arrival we, we were taken around the crime scene and uh, obviously there was uh, complete devastation uh, around the area of the Sari Club um, as a result of the, the vehicle bomb that had uh, been detonated out the front of that club. The buildings were very light in construction, so it was com- complete devastation uh, around that area of, uh, of Bali. So did you get a real sense of the violence of the event? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, 202 people lost their lives. Uh, it was uh, detonated in a very busy area of the, the nightclub region of uh, Kuta Beach. And uh, the bombing took place uh, on a Saturday night. So obviously there were a lot of people in that area. Uh, and, and, you know, you certainly got a sense of that walking around the scene. Uh, the the complete devastation and uh, you know it was not surprising that so many people lost their lives. Did you find that a confronting thing to see? 
Oh, it certainly was. Uh, to, to see that level of destruction from a, a deliberate attempt, uh, a deliberate attack. Uh, so it was certainly very confronting. Uh, obviously, at that stage, there had already been a lot of processing of the crime scene. A lot of evidence had already been collected. And uh, the Australian Federal Police, in collaboration with the Indonesian National Police, were already well advanced with the investigation at that point. Okay, so you arrive at the crime scene, uh, the bomb site, at, and then what do you do? Did you, like, you were looking around the scene or were you working in the labs? What, what happened next? Well, it was a combination of getting a sense of what took place at the scene, uh, what samples had already been collected from that scene. And what the Australian Federal Police had done is was to establish... A, a laboratory within a, a resort area of uh, of Bali and actually set up instrumentation to do some preliminary scientific testing of samples that had been taken from the, the crime scene. And that included a, a large number of swabs that had been taken to try and, de- try and determine the type of explosive that had been used. Okay, so how do you go about doing that? So you, you've got, what, is it bits of wood and bits of metal and clothing i presume and other stuff yeah a lot of evidence was collected Uh, this included uh, swabs taken off various surfaces around the crime scene pieces of debris that were also collected Uh, it included uh, analyzing clothing from uh, victims of the attack Uh, some of the analyses were done as i say within uh, an improvised laboratory that had been set up uh, in a hotel complex to give us some preliminary results and samples that came up positive were then sent back to Australia to be further analysed within the Federal Police Laboratory here in Canberra. Okay, so you've got a piece... Can Maybe perhaps you can think of a particular piece of evidence that came in, one uh, scrap of something or other. Is it coming in a bag or a bottle or something like that? Yeah, the, depending on the, on the evidence, it will be packaged in a certain type of packaging to, to make sure that the, the evidence is not compromised so that there's no accidental contamination of that evidence and that the evidence is retained. And that could be just simply a swab that was taken at the scene, packaged up appropriately. We, we had done some preliminary testing uh, in Bali that gave us an, a general idea of the types of residues that were present. And then uh, once initial testing was done in Bali, again, the, the swabs will be sent back to Canberra where you know, full laboratory analysis would well, be done. Without saying talking about anything particularly you're not comfortable with, but can you perhaps think of a particular piece of evidence that stands out in your memory and, and how you dealt with it, how it came in and what you did with it? Probably a key piece of evidence was some, were some swabs taken from around the crater outside the Sari Club. There was a crater? Yes, that was from the, the vehicle bomb that went out outside the Sari Club. There was quite a large crater uh, that uh, had been created in the roadway. Uh, as an aside, the Indonesian National Police had recovered some vehicle components from the crater and also some vehicle components blown out from the from the blast centre and a serial number on the vehicle remains actually led to identifying the vehicle and who had recently purchased that vehicle. Uh, in terms of the explosive residues, a, a crucial piece of evidence was some swabs that taken near the crater that gave us some preliminary results in Bali that chlorate may be present. The swab was sent back to Canberra. Further laboratory testing actually confirmed that chlorate was a, a main component of that large vehicle bomb. You know, is chlorate, not, I'm not being a, not a chemist, but is chlorate a component of a farm chemical? Uh, or, or is it specifically a specialised explosive? 
chlorate is, is what's called a very strong oxidizer. And if you mix very strong oxidizers like chlorate or nitrate with a, with a fuel, then they can cause mixtures that under certain conditions can, can explode. Uh, an example of use of chlorate is actually in fireworks. A lot of firework mixtures uh, contain chlorate mixed in with certain fuels. Uh, so that's where it's used as a pyrotechnic. But if these pyrotechnic mixtures are actually con confined and set off with a, a, a smaller booster charge of explosive, they can actually detonate. And that was the explosive force that uh, led to the, the devastation of the Sari Club. So you were in Bali for just a few weeks? A couple of weeks in Bali, but back in Canberra, uh, heavily involved with the, the overall coordination of the forensic efforts to... Uh, not only determine what took place, and for example, what types of explosives have been used, but we were also uh, heavily involved in the victim identification process. Right. So then you need to use large-scale pieces of equipment, I presume, like mass spectrometers and grass, gas flame chromatographs and all this kind of stuff. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of explosive residue analysis, we have a whole sequence of examinations that we apply. Uh, a very simple screening technique is using an instrument that's called an iron mobility spectrometer. And these are the types of instruments that are used at airports that are used to screen for drugs and explosives. Uh, that is a preliminary screen for explosive compounds. And then if we get a, a positive result, we would move on to some of the techniques you've mentioned, capillary electrophoresis, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, etc. Ah, lots of... So it's getting pretty technical now. And at some point, you're going to present this evidence to a jury, into the court system. And we, here we have, I think, the, perhaps the collision of the scientific mindset with the legal mindset. What's been your experience with that? I think this is probably the major challenge for a forensic scientist, is this interface between science and the law, which, which is what forensic actually means. Forensic means pertaining to the courtroom or to law. So forensic science is the application of science at that interface. It is extremely complex in that when we are in court, we, are in the, we have to play by the rules of the, the legal system. So we're certainly outside our comfort zone, which would be the same as taking a lawyer into the laboratory. Uh, it's, it certainly is a clash of cultures. And as forensic scientists, the major challenge is one of communication in that we often apply highly complex scientific techniques in the laboratory, but when we give evidence in court, we have to give that evidence in a way that a layperson, a person with no scientific qualifications, can actually understand what we have done, what our results are, how we've interpreted those results, and what the results actually mean. Yes, and there's a really interesting book just been released by Dr. Carl, who's a friend of Fuzzy Logic. You might have heard his promo from time to time that we like to play. And he talks in there about how a judge, a judge's sentencing can vary depending on how long it is since they've had a meal break. So it's a highly subjective thing. So this is a risk that all of us take when we're in a technical field and it seems like it's all very objective and very precise and so on. How much is forensics prone to making the same kind of mistakes, do you think, that we will interpret something technical in one way or another depending on whether we had a nice breakfast. I mean, as forensic scientists, I mean, first and foremost, we want to be scientific. So we want to apply 
objective techniques, generate results from that, uh, interpret those results based on what is known in the literature, our own experience, what is the general feeling within the forensic community in terms of what the results actually mean, and then present those results as objectively as possible in court. So we like to believe that we are as objective as possible. But there are certain elements of interpretation which may have a subjective element to them, and two scientists may have differing opinions in terms of what those results actually mean. Yes, and of course, strong in the popular mind are stories such as like the Azaria Chamberlain case, and I have interviewed uh, James Robertson, who was the head of forensics at the AFP, and before the interview he said, oh, I'm so bored with talking about the Azaria Chamberlain case. But uh, would you say those things are unusual, that uh, the system manages to weed out the subjective, the, um, the excessively personal judgment too much? I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that the, the, the courts would have a, a critical look at the evidence, have a critical look at the person giving that evidence. And, and it's up to the scientists as well to communicate any limitations of that evidence. Now, for example, if we go back to the Azaria Chamberlain case, obviously we were limited by the technology back then. Uh, we didn't have DNA profiling. We had to rely on tests that are considered to be presumptive or, or, or tests that give an indication for the presence of a particular material but were not conclusive. For example, a test that gives a strong indication for the presence of blood but is not conclusive that blood is present. And the challenge, I think, is to make sure that the court is aware of the limitations. And I think in the Azaria Chamberlain case, there was a, there was a miscommunication in that the biologist was giving evidence to say that tests indicated the, the likely presence of blood. The court was interpreting that as being conclusive evidence that blood was present. So that's where this miscommunication can cause problems. Right. So let's talk about the difference between accuracy, 0.001, and correctness. Is that, is that an example, perhaps, of maybe not specifically the Azaria case, but that's a, an example of a sort of thing where a jury uh, of your peers, which, let's face it, for peers is the normal public who has varying levels of education, and they get a scientific report that says 0.001 something. Is that the same as being correct? I think, again, it's up to the forensic scientist to communicate any limitations in, in the testing or the interpretation. And, you know, a simple example can be the numbers that are generated from DNA profiling, in that the way those numbers are generated requires a mathematical model, requires a particular database, uh, and there are certain assumptions that are, that are made to arrive at the number that is presented in court. And if you're presented with a number, there is a perception that that number is objective, it's scientific, it's absolute. It, there is no other answer but that number. What needs to be recognised is that 
there are some underlying assumptions and some limitations in those mathematical models to arrive at that number. Which is quite a nuance for the average person. Which kind of a good point now to play our next track, which is Trick Me, which is what we're going to do. But here we are on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with Professor Chris Leonard, head of forensic at the University of Canberra. And we're leaving a crime scene in the studio, our DNA is all across the studio and our voice is across the airways. You can pick us up on podbean.com for our podcast at Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com and on iTunes if you like those poddy things and on the internet here on 2XX. Trick me. They didn't trick me this time because we played the right track here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday on 2XX and our guest today is Professor Chris Leonard from Forensics at University of Canberra and he's got a very deep interest in fingerprints and doing research in fingerprints. Now you would have thought fingerprints was an old topic because as we said earlier it dates back to Francis Galton in 18 something or other or over a hundred years ago and um, what, what can we do with fingerprints now? What, let's start with how do we process the fingerprint right? So I believe that superglue is part of the history of fingerprint detection. Yeah, superglue is a relatively recent technique. It dates from the, the late 1970s, uh, and it involves fuming an object with superglue vapour. And this is commercial superglue. If you heat it, it forms a vapour. And in the presence of that vapour, fingerprints will be developed as very hard white images of those finger marks. Oh, so the glue sticks to the, the residue of the fingerprint? It's actually a chemical reaction. It's a, a reaction called polymerisation. The superglue polymerises along the finger mark ridges to give a hard white polymer. Turns into plastic, effectively? Essentially turns into plastic, that's correct. Okay, so what actually is a fingerprint? Yeah, when you touch a surface, you're leaving behind a very complex mixture of chemicals. And that's made up of the, the chemicals that you naturally have on your hands in the form of perspiration. Now, the perspiration on your hands is largely water, mm -hmm. but it also uh, has residues of salt and some organic compounds such as amino acids. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to the sweat on your fingers, you will have other chemicals such as sebaceous material. Now, this is the greasy sebum that you get when you touch your face, for example. This is a different chemical mixture. It contains fatty acids and lipids, so that gives it its greasy feeling. So the finger mark will contain some perspiration, will contain some sebaceous material, will also contain other chemicals that you've picked up just by touching various surfaces uh, in your environment. Oh, so could you tell a little bit about where a person had been, perhaps, by some of the chemical residues? Generally, what we do is target the natural secretions to actually develop the finger marks. But in certain cases, we could go looking for foreign contaminants, for example, illicit drugs or explosives, which might indicate something that that individual has recently handled. Ah, yes, I did go to the science festival one year and they, oh, the thing where you, you, get, you present your cash and it detects any, any traces of cocaine on it and one of my notes had some cocaine on it. I've never tried cocaine. But um, it's amazing how sensitive some of these tests can be. How much do you need to, to pick up something? 
the, the sort of screening technique you're talking about is the one I mentioned earlier that's used at the airports, uh, the ion mobility spectrometer, which are these instruments are extremely sensitive to very small amounts of illicit drugs and explosives. And we can get down to na sub-nanogram levels for explosives, even down to picogram levels of illicit drugs. So we're talking extremely small amounts, hence your experience with banknotes, that you can actually pick up residues uh, of illicit drugs oh, that are so, there in very low concentration. Oh, so when we put our bags on the conveyor belt at the airport at, at the check-in and then the nice lady says, can I excuse me, sir, and they, and, and, and you can tell if they're bored, there's not much going on, that you're going to get swabbed for sure. Is that the device you're talking about? Yeah, at the airport, when you walk through the metal detector and you collect your hand luggage and you start walking away, that's when a person may come up to you and say, well, we now want to, want to uh, screen you. They will pull you over. They will take a swab of your clothing, off your luggage, and they will insert that swab into the instrument. And that's the instrument uh, that I've referred so to as the small, iron mobility spectrometer. Quite, quite a compact little thing, actually, isn't it? It is. And, and there are even handheld devices of that type out on the market that can be used for Now, I know uh, how sensitive testing. they are because a friend of mine had been a kiddie's birthday party and they had those little popper things with a shoot the streamers out. And he had tiny, tiny traces of gunpowder, I think, on him. And he got, I'm not sure they, they cleared him, but um, they picked it up. Yeah, and in that case, it was probably nitrate that was being picked up from the, uh, the propellant, the um, pyrotechnic material in the, in the streamers. All right, so let's go back to the fingerprints. What kind of work, research work are you developing with fingerprints? Well, because fingerprints are, are, are still such an important type of physical evidence and can be used to conclusively identify an individual, we are always on the lookout for increasingly more sensitive techniques to pick up finger, finger marks across a whole range of different surfaces. So at the University of Canberra and in partnership with University of Technology Sydney and the Australian Federal Police, we've been undertaking uh, quite extensive research programs to come up with techniques that are more sensitive and hence will reveal increasingly weaker finger marks on a range of different surfaces. Now I can see, feel that you have a real passion for this topic. Was there something that really got you interested in wanting to explore the science of crime scenes? I think with myself it started as a general interest in science at university and, and particularly in chemistry. And at the time when I was starting my PhD at the ANU here in Canberra, the Australian Federal Police had provided the chemistry department with some research funding, and this research funding was directed at developing new finger mark detection techniques. So I had the opportunity of doing a PhD in chemistry that was actually directed at developing new techniques for the chemical detection of finger marks. So it started off as a, as a research project during my university studies, and has remained as a very strong area of interest for, uh, for my research. So was it primarily the science that got you interested, or is the fact that it's related to criminology? Uh, I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, I actually grew up, if, if I can use the expression, in the New South Wales Police, because my father was a, a member of the police. Uh, he always said to me, don't ever join the police. So I thought if I got a science qualification that that uh. would never happen. But uh, obviously in the back of my mind was that interface of science and the law and getting into forensic science, I guess, was inevitable. So it was certainly a combination of the two, is using science uh, as a, a form of investigation 
and uh, that led to, as I said, the, the research in the fingerprint area and since then a very strong interest in researching uh, better techniques to develop finger marks across a range of surfaces. So now we've, we've talked about your experiences in Bali, but in general you, you're seeing a side of life that exists and is an undercurrent of our society that most of us don't see much of. How does it affect your view of humanity, your view of life, to be to see the sorts of things that you must come across? Yeah, it, it's certainly a, a side of humanity that, that's not particularly pleasant. But you certainly receive the training uh, to to be able to approach a crime scene or a particular uh, crime uh, as professional as an objective as possible. So you, you try not to let some of the the images and the this bad side of humanity to impact on your work. So you, you'll see very much a forensic scientist being very professional in the way they do their job. But that certainly doesn't mean that some individuals can over time be impacted on by uh, the types of crime that they have to investigate. Well, I think I remember about James Robinson was he had a, had a particular sense of humour. So is using humour a way of helping you to detach from the unpleasant side of what you, you're exposed to? Uh, I think for some individuals that, that is a mechanism they can use. Uh, having met a lot of forensic pathologists over the time, the, these are the individuals that do the post-mortems, they're probably the ones that have the, uh, if I could say, the weirdest sense of humour, and it might, what may well be a, a natural mechanism to to try and protect them from uh, the type of work that they have to do. Do you, do you have other ways to disassociate from it? Oh, I, I think that you just need a, a very healthy lifestyle away from work, uh, and, and mechanisms for basically clearing your head uh, from uh, from some of the investigations you have to be involved in. But for most people, as I say, they have a very professional approach. Uh, the application of standard methods, uh, techniques, uh, and, and there really is that separation from um, doing the job and what would otherwise uh, be images and situations that, that might otherwise uh, impact on you. And now I take it, um, it it's been a successful career for you. Is it something you would recommend to someone who is interested in going into science? Absolutely, and I'm always a fan of applied science, not not a fan of just doing science for the sake of science, but seeing it in a very applied situation, in a situation in this instance where we can make a significant impact on the legal system by helping with the investigation of crime and ultimately determining the individuals responsible for that crime uh, and then uh, allowing the legal system to deal with them appropriately. Well, Professor Chris Leonard, it has been a pleasure to talk to you today on Fuzzy Logic. Many thank you for your time. Thanks, Rod. And uh, we'll plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Tomorrow we're talking about why food is crunchy in the Canberra Times in our Ask Fuzzy column. And the week after that, we've got some really fascinating stuff on why do you get an afterimage after you see something bright and then walk into a dark room. That is actually... Both on the surface sound like, you know, simple questions, but actually they're really quite deep and fascinating. So plenty more coming up for you here on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Catch you later.